0: I think the kids that are leaving are probably too young to know this game, but maybe you know it. Who in here has ever played Mousetrap? 1963 game. That's when it was invented. Uh, But if you don't know it, it is summarized in its 1990s jingle, okay? And uh, you, you probably recognize it here. Just turn the crank and snap the plank, and the boot the marble down the chute. Right? Now watch it roll and hit the pole and knock the ball in the rubber dub tub, which hits the man into the pan. The trap is set and then here comes the net mouse trap. I guarantee it's the craziest game you'll ever see. All right? A whole series of kind of chain and reactions kind of game and the way they had it on the commercial did not live up to actually playing it. Did it for anybody else? You had to really shake that net to get it to land on the mouse. But what is going on in that uh, jingle is exactly what is happening in John chapter 5 through chapter 12. Really, we're in a series here of John, and five through 12 is one series of events that leads to this chain reaction. It all started off when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath in John chapter five. And since John chapter five, when he heals that man on the wrong day of the week, according to the religious police, they begin to ask, who is he? Where is he from? Where is he going? What is he doing? How does he do it? Who is this man? And those questions just continue to get repeated and repeated and repeated. And there is clearly division over Jesus. And divisions abound today over who is Jesus. But this division back then, it it grows into some hostility. By the time we get to John 5.18, I mean, just the end of the account of him healing a man, John 5.18 says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Here's a definition, making himself equal with God. Then in John 7, after this, Jesus did not go about in Galilee or Judea because the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. And as we heard uh, Rebecca read, our passage ends this morning with, so they picked up stones to stone him. What makes people so hostile to Jesus? What makes the human heart so resistant to Jesus? Why are people so opposed to who he is? I think we're finally getting the answer. It's been three or four weeks of building and we've kinda seen it, but now I think our section this morning really clarifies the issue. Here it is, right? One thing we can know for sure. When Jesus speaks about his own identity, that's one thing. But when he begins to talk about your identity, Your pride is wounded, and they would rather rid the world of Jesus than to admit their need of him. That's the sermon in a nutshell. Because Jesus wounds our pride, we would rather rid the world of God than rather admit our need of him. We'd rather rid the world of Jesus than admit our need of him. The structure of the text shows us that Jesus wounds our pride in three ways. Each paragraph there in your Bible gives us a point. And I just wanna kinda of show you the outline. Verses 31 through 38, that's that first section. Jesus claims to be the light of the world. And as the light of the world, he exposes that we are not really as free as we think we are. And they want to rid the world of him because they do not like hearing that they are not free but slaves because they don't recognize their own slavery. Verses 39 through 47.2, the lie of the world exposes that these religious Jewish people are not really a part of God's family because they rely upon their ancestry, their morality, and their religiosity. And finally, in verses 48 through 59, the light of the world exposes that they don't really know God because they don't recognize his true identity. Well, to switch analogies, what Jesus is doing here is like pulling on a thread. Have you ever bought a sweater, it got snagged, and then you made the mistake of pulling on that thread? Well, what Jesus is doing here is he is pulling on a thread that just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming until he has completely unraveled their identity, what they prided themselves over, what they really trusted in. And he wants to wound their pride so that they would admit their need of him. But even though he keeps pulling that thread, and they are left with not a single ounce of sweater or fabric to cover up their shame, rather than admit they need his help, they would rid the world of him. Well, my non-Christian friend, I know that you're listening to that introduction saying, well, I mean, I might not be all about Christianity But I don't really have anything in common with those people because I'm not trying to rid the world of Jesus. I I wouldn't want to murder him. I, I appreciate some of the things that he has to say and his character. I've seen the church do a lot of good to people. We're glad you're here, but I just want you to think about what really made them murder him for a second so that you'll pay attention to the rest of the sermon. What really made them murder him? What made them oppose him so bad? Well, basically, Jesus was questioning things they didn't want questioned. Jesus was challenging them on areas, they didn't want challenged. So Jesus, disappeared. And with that, we realize the road in John eight is no different than the road of 106. Every day, people want to rid their hearts of Jesus. Have you ever said, Jesus, would you just stop bothering me? Would you just stop calling me out and getting into my life and making things more difficult? <clears throat> have you ever thought, would you just stop causing tension and strife by questioning and challenging all I find my identity in? Jesus, you're undoing me. I'd have to change if I followed you. Jesus, dis. Well, we too, right, would rather rid the world of Jesus than admit our need of him, and he wounds our pride in the exact same areas. First, they would rid the world of Jesus, and we would too, because Jesus tells us, you are not free. That's point number one, you are not free. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, verse 31 and 32, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And their pride is wounded because they don't recognize their own slavery. Look at how they answer him in verse 33. (laughs) We are of the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? It it bothered them that he suggested that they needed to be set free in the first place. Jesus, don't you know who who you're talking to here? We're not slaves. How about this for a good New Hampshire flag? Don't tread on me? (laughs) That's kind of what they're into, right? But the only legitimate reason to believe in Jesus, right, is that you recognize that you're a slave to sin. The only legitimate reason to believe in Jesus is if you recognize you're a slave to sin and that you need to be set free. But that strikes right at the center of our pride just as it struck right at the center of their pride, it wounds our pride today because we like to think of ourselves as good people who sometimes make mistakes, right? Sure, we're not perfect, but, but slaves to sin? We're not slaves to anyone. Don't you know our nation's motto, right? We are the land of the free because we are the home of the brave? And with that kind of admission and that kind of pride, we now no longer need Jesus. Jesus is no longer essential to our rescue because we don't recognize our own slavery. Therefore, we don't have any need of Him. And rather than admit our need of Him, we would rather just rid the world of Him. But Jesus, the light of the world, continues to expose their false securities. Look at verse 37. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Second point, they would rid the world of Jesus, and we would too, because Jesus challenges our religious assumptions of who really is in the family of God. Jesus challenges our religious assumptions of who really is in the family of God. You see, the Jews prided themselves in being the physical descendants of Abraham. They were laying claim that they have a good relationship with God because they were born into a good Jewish family. Look at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Right? See what they're appealing to? They are appealing to bloodline, right? They are appealing to their religious ethnicity as a reason for why they can know for sure they are in a relationship with God. They are appealing to their ancestry, to their heritage. All of that gives them this privilege, right? Because I'm from this family, therefore I have faith, right? Since I was born into God's family physically, I am a member of God's family, Kids, that's why they sing that song, right? Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. I mean, you see the confidence? I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just do the hokey pokey. All right, yeah, I mean, <laughs> sing along, yeah. Um, but but that, that whole song is about their religious identity. That, that's who our dad is. We're one of them, so are you. And then the hokey-pokey becomes a Christian thing. I don't know if we should do that for our next membership, you know, uh, right hand of fellowship. You do the hokey-pokey, turn yourself around and you're a member of this faith family. Something like that, right? But Jesus calls us out. He says, simply because you were born into God's family doesn't make you a member of God's family. Look at verses 39 through 41. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. We have to know this big person called Abraham and what works was he doing. If you were to read through Genesis, starting in chapter 12, Abraham is the prototype of faith because according to Genesis 15, Abraham got a promise from God, and Abraham believed it, and it was credited to him for righteousness. He got that promise before he did any kind of religious acts, and he believed God. And now he became the father of many nations. Through him, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed because of his faith. And so in other words, to be a part of God's family is really through belief. It's not by birth. It doesn't matter if your dad's the pastor, your mom plays the piano, your dad's an elder, or you have a plaque of some family lineage that donated land to get this place started. We're all grateful for those things, but that doesn't get us in. So, if you're exploring Christianity, this is something the Bible comes back to again and, again and again and again and again and again. We don't want you to miss it. Here's the point the Bible says that all of God's children are adopted. Every single one of us that are God's true children are adopted. None of us are born deserving God's favor. All of God's children are adopted. So if he was willing to do that to me, and even to you, does that not swell your heart full of hope to believe who is possibly beyond the power of his call? May that energize you this week as whatever witnessing encounters and engagements you have, planned or spontaneous, to know that all of God's children are adopted. And if he can call you and he can call me into his adopted family, Well, he can call that person you meet that's your neighbor, that's your coworker, or a stranger you meet on the street. All of God's children are adopted. Now, I realize that that should encourage us as witnesses, or as evangelists, but some of you might really be offended by that. It's kind of inflammatory, because what I'm saying, just to kind of read between the lines here, is that God really doesn't care if you were baptized as an infant. God doesn't care if you were raised in a good Methodist home, a good Catholic home, or a good Baptist home, or even at Faith Community Bible Church. I really don't think Jesus cares about those things. You want to know why? Let's not forget who he's talking to. He's talking to religious Jews who are on pilgrimage to celebrate God. Their pedigree is top-notch. They really are the people of God. And their religious performance is second to none. They're on pilgrimage. And Jesus says, just because your pedigree and your performance is there doesn't really mean that you're a member of the family. Not everyone who says they're a member of the family is a member of the family. And that wounds our pride, and it wounded theirs. I mean, haven't we all been schooled to believe that all of humanity is God's children? Talk to Ben Coochie, talk to Chip, talk to Colin O'Brien. I guarantee you the people they meet on the street say, oh yeah, I'm one of God's children. I'm part of God's family. It is just assumed that we're just all God's children. And in one sense, that's true. We're all made in God's image. But in another sense, it's not true at all. Look at how they respond. Verse 41, little jab at Jesus We were not born of sexual immorality. We don't know about you. don't really know who your dad is. Uh, But we have one father, and we know clearly who he is. He's God. Well, Jesus says, oh, if you want to talk bloodline, let's talk bloodline. If you want to talk spiritual DNA, let's go for it. You are of your father, the devil. Look at verses 42 through 44. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. Now notice, as we go on, two characteristics that Jesus uses to describe Satan. He was a one, murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he too lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and a father of lies. The two characteristics of the devil, there could be many more. Jesus only mentions two here, lying and murdering. And he does that in order to take you back to the very beginning. You want to think about your ancestral line? Well, let's go all the way back to the first man and first woman. And there was lying between them. And their first children, right, Cain, murdered Abel. And the reason why he describes Satan in this way is for you to get this point. If you really want to know who your daddy is, if you really want to go back to your ancestral line, don't stop at Abraham. you got to go all the way back to Adam, which is why we sang in our song, right, every man in his hell-bound race. And Christ is a better Adam. But we start off with realizing and admitting that we were all first children of that first Adam in our disobedience. Go back and realize that unbelief started with Adam. And how did it start? How did all the other sins come through? Because he did not trust or listen to God's word. Right? The root of all of our rebellion starts with resisting truth, which is what Jesus has just told them. Why don't you understand? Because you do not care to know the truth. He picks it up again in verses 45 and 46. All rebellion starts with resisting the truth. 45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you can convicts, convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? It's got to be one of the saddest verses in all of scripture. Did you catch it? Because I tell you the truth. Because. The reason you will not believe me is because I'm telling you the truth. What are you saying? From the beginning, we would rather swallow lies. Jesus is saying, if I was feeding you lies, you'd gladly gobble it up. But because I'm telling you the truth, You would rather rid the world of me. Hey, family, sometimes it is not the lies that are hardest to believe. It is the truth that is hardest to believe. Truth about God, truth about you, truth about how you can know him. It is because Jesus tells the truth the world would rather rid itself of him. What lie... Are we wanting to believe so we can remain comfortable rather than coming face-to-face with the uncomfortable truth? Well, be warm, faith family. How you respond to Jesus' words indicates what family you are in. How you respond to his words indicate what family you're in. Look at 47. Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you don't hear them That you are not of God. That's a conclusion. He's talking to Jews, descendants of Abraham, who are at a religious festival celebrating God, and Jesus tells them, you don't belong to God because you don't hear. It's your nature to want to resist the truth because you're not free. You're owned by Satan, and their pride is wounded. Their defenses go up, and they result to the last tactic they have, name-calling and laughing. Name-calling. Here it is, verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Now, I don't know about you, but when somebody calls you demon-possessed, I don't know if I would respond the way Jesus does. Jesus answered them, I don't have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Faith family, as you're engaging the world, this is how you do it. You get attacked. Assault, assault, assault comes at you, your person, your character, your beliefs. Lunatic, demon possessed, whatever they want to call you, snake handler, snake charmer, whatever it is. I've been called the book. What is it? Jesus still looks them in the eye, does not see them as the enemy, and offers a gracious invitation that anyone, including those that are currently resisting you and name-calling you, that if they would believe, they would never see death to this hard-hearted, angry, hypocritical, false religious teacher mob. Whew. You gotta remember, faith family, that there might be people out there that wanna promote all kinds of things that you're against, lobby for all kinds of things that you're against, and you might want to see them as the enemy. But Jesus here, after being called demon-possessed, looks at them and says, anyone, right? Anyone who keeps my word will never see death. Well, their opinion of Jesus is not God's opinion of Jesus. God seeks Jesus to get glorified. Look again at 49. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon. I honor my Father. You dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. God wants to see Jesus get all the glory. And the way he's going to do that is by being lifted up on a cross so that when he dies, he can offer life to everybody else. Jesus and the devil... Man, they're complete opposites, aren't they? The devil speaks lies. The other speaks truth. The devil was a murderer from the beginning. And Jesus Christ is the life and the life giver to all. One masquerades as an angel of light but brings death. And the other one is the light of the world. And whoever believes in him will not taste death but have life. doesn't mean that Christians don't die. It means, as we celebrated yesterday, that Christians are rescued from death. But what Jesus has to say about death seems to insult Abraham and all the other prophets. So look at what they say in 52 and 53. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as is the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? The very question he's hoping they would ask. The very question he's hoping you will ask this morning. And we come to our final point. They would rid the world of Jesus, and we would rid him today from our world because he demands that for you to know God, you can only know God through him because him and the Father are one. They will not recognize his true identity. They will resist the truth that you cannot know God the Father without coming through God the Son. Well, what does our culture hold when it comes to this? I was talking to John Gorham last week in Palmer Hall. Great discussion. He insightfully said this. His analysis of our culture is this. We are committed to agnosticism. We're committed to actually not knowing our culture ever wants to learn and never to arrive at the truth. But this is what Jesus says. There is something I know. Look at 55. You have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and you will know God, and you will know him, and, and I keep his word. Sorry, I, I messed that up. I, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. He's just saying he's utterly unique. He knows him. He's the only way that you can know God is coming through the Son, Jesus Christ. So look at 56 and 50 through 58. He says, your father rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said, you are not 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus is claiming that Abraham longed for his day and that Abraham rejoiced to see the day. But what does that exactly mean? We don't know for sure. He doesn't explain it. But here's a couple of things that it could mean for you. Abraham trusted God for a son he had to believe Abraham trusted God for a sacrifice a ram caught in the thicket when he was about to sacrifice his own son Isaac and ultimately with eyes of faith the father of faith knew that there would be a better son who would come Hebrews knew that there would be a better sacrifice that would be a substitute Through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham longed for the day, the great day in which the Lord would come. And Jesus has the audacity to say, Abraham rejoiced to see, not the day. No, he equates the day, that great day. Abraham rejoiced to see who? My day. You know that great day the whole Old Testament is pointing to? It's all fulfilled in me. My coming is that great day. They've already name called him, so now they hope to laugh him off the stage. Are you saying you're a contemporary of Abraham who lived 2,000 years ago? I mean, you look old, but but not that old, okay? Are you saying that he actually saw you? That Abraham knew you? Nuh-uh, right? (laughs) You weren't there. I mean, you're not that old. How could you? What did you get, like three wishes and a lamp? And they just kind of want to laugh them off. Jesus doesn't take the bait. Jesus claims for the third time in our passage, before Abraham was, I am. We heard it last week. I am he. Jesus is not claiming preexistence. He is claiming for himself the sacred name of God from the Old Testament. He is claiming to be I am that I am. It's the name that God used when he revealed himself to Moses. And when did God reveal himself to Moses? What was going on in the nation's history at that point? They were slaves in Egypt who needed rescue. Hmm. And Jesus takes that name on himself. Jesus When we are slaves in our sin and in need of rescue, Jesus says, I am essential for your rescue. And that is why we would rid the world of Jesus, not only because he tells you you're not free, not only because he tells you that you're not a member of God's family based upon your morality, your religiosity, or your ancestry, He says, the reason why you want to rid the world of me, the reason you go from talking about all the advantages to wanting to stone me is because I claim to be the only way for you to know God. You cannot love God the Father if you don't love God the Son. I am that I am. He claims to know God, to come from God, and to be the only one to rescue you from what your sins deserve, which is death. Death is a punishment for sin. It's a just judgment for the sins that we've deserved. And this is where the profound doctrine that we read about that uh, Mark Lattarella introduced us to. Who is Jesus? It all comes together as we read this morning. Jesus Christ had to be a human in order to be a substitute for us. But he also had to be God in order to pay our debt. And all that comes together sure. here in this passage. At a time When the people of God are coming together for a religious festival, they are remembering that God is light who rescued them out of slavery and was gonna lead them into the promised land and now standing before them face to face is the light of the world. And they are blind to it. And they resist it. Because in their pride, they say, we're not slaves. How dare you tell us we're slaves? We're free. We belong to God. How dare you question? Don't you know I was confirmed? I was baptized and my dad was the preacher? I don't need you for my rescue. My pedigree and my performance is enough. And so unfortunately the Jews are not quite who they think they are. And their father isn't quite who they think he is. And they would rather murder God than admit their need of him. So what about you? What state of humanity are you in? There's only two categories. There's no fence writing here. Christ makes it really hard. It's a very tough passage, isn't it? He says you're either enslaved or free. That's the two choices you have, the state of every human being, enslaved or free. Then he asks you, which family are you in? The devils or gods? Here's the bottom line. You will never know who you are until you know who Jesus Christ is. You'll never know who you are until you know who Jesus Christ is. You will never know who you are until you know who Jesus Christ is, right? You reach a false verdict about who Jesus Christ is, and you will not recognize that you are a slave to sin. You reach a false verdict about who Jesus Christ is and you will rely upon your ancestry, your morality, your religiosity, thinking that you're a member of God's family and you're not. You get it wrong about Jesus and who he is. You'll get it wrong about who you are, what state you're in, and who your dad is. But if you recognize this Jesus as that God, You can be set free. You can be born of God. You will know where you are from and where you are going. And you will rejoice in that day because you're going to know who it is who will meet you and greet you and welcome you in. It'll be the second Adam, your greater, older brother, Jesus. And you will inherit what he worked for. And in turn to the joy of their master. Faith family, is that what you are glorying in? Do you rejoice that day? Do you look forward to that day? Not the day when the elections come and who wins, not the day when your sports team wins the Super Bowl. Do you rejoice like Abraham, the father of faith, in that day? If you're not rejoicing in that, well, we're not walking with the light of the world. Our vision's gotten blurry. We've been in the dark too long. Christians, we need to come out of that and realize that we're free. We're born of God because of who Jesus Christ is. We can only know God through Him. Let's have a moment of silence and consider what Christ would be calling you to do. As the praise team comes up, we're going to sing a song called, Yet Not I, But Christ and Me. We've been uh, singing each morning as a family a certain song for kind of a whole month. Just to kind of get it in our heads, to memorize it. And uh, we've been chewing on this, this modern day hymn. And I think it fits this passage. It's also because it's just in my head every morning. But this, the lyrics say, no fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. I know who I am, I know where I'm going. The future's sure, the price has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. He was raised over the grave. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released, I can sing, I am free Yet not I, but Christ in me. Let's stand and sing.